Well, Charismatics got their fill on the first song, Traditionalists got your fill on the second song, and you middle of the rotors, you're just out. I'm just kidding you. You ready to roll? Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we need your help. We need your insight into what you're saying here. It's so, it seems so complicated. It seems uh, it's contrary to what some of us hear in culture about who you are. And so, Lord, just send your Holy Spirit. Give us insight, wisdom, and discernment. Help us understand, Lord, how this would change our lives or change our story that we tell about you. Help us be accurate in our explanation of the gospel and not inaccurate, Lord. To be inaccurate is to miss the point completely, which is you at the center, your death, your burial, and your resurrection, which is the hope of all humanity. Be with us today, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Okay, so this morning my attempt is going to be fairly singular given the context of Luke 12. We're starting in verse 49. If you have your Bibles, it's going to be pretty simple. We're going to do away with the, the narrative of Jesus as moral teacher. He is a moral teacher, but just Jesus came, and if we can kind of live in the spirit of love, uh, then, then, then we are, in fact, doing everything that Jesus, the moral teacher, talked about. And I'm not discounting the fact that Jesus was both prophet, priest, king, moral teacher, extraordinary, lamb, bread of light, light of life, uh, bread of life and, and all the above. All those things are true. But we have to understand because our culture is not ready completely to dismiss Jesus because they like to cling around the edges. But as if you remember in Easter, we talked about golf digest Jesus and we love to go to him for a few tips and to help us with our the swing of life. And sometimes he helps us and sometimes he doesn't. We need to understand what he said again about himself and his mission. Are you ready? Okay, Luke chapter 12, verse 49. We're going to take some of these enigmatic statements that he makes, at least from our perception, and try to work them back throughout the entire scope of the Bible to understand what he's talking about because it's hard to try to isolate some things that he says without the context of Genesis 1-1 through Revelation 22. We have to understand the meta-narrative. You hear me say that all the time, but what is the overarching story and how does Jesus fit into it? for these three and a half years of ministry that he is now performing and invited his disciples in to understand. Okay, so verse 49, I have come to cast fire upon the earth. Let me say that again. Jesus' words, I have come to cast fire upon the earth, and oh, how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until is it accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth. There is an entire section of the world, uh, and most world religions are in some way um, aspire to be like Jesus, teach kind of the moral golden thread, whatever it is. The, 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 they don't just completely discount Jesus. And very few people I've met are ready to say that Jesus was an imposter or an ignoramus or a, or a bad influence. Very few people very few people that I've ever met, but they are unwilling to understand what Jesus just said. Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? And everybody said, of course. Well, that's the purpose of Jesus. He says, I tell you, no. I tell you, no. But rather, division. Hmm, interesting. 
Again, Jesus' words, for from now on, five members in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Now, I'm not going to cover these, but in context, I want to read the next few verses and then we'll look at them more, more in depth next week. And he was also saying to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say a shower's coming. And well, it turns out to be that. And when you see a south wind blowing, you say, well, it's going to be a hot day. And it turns out that way. And you're just a bunch of hypocrites. You know how to analyze the appearance of the earth and the sky, but why do you not analyze this present time? And why do you not even on your own initiative judge what is right for while you're going with your opponent to appear before the magistrate on your way there, make an effort to settle with him so that you may not, he may not drag you before the judge and the judge turn you over to the officer and the officer throw you into prison. I say to you, you will not get out of there until you've paid the very last cent. Now, all of this needs to be looked at as a group, but we're going to break it down into two weeks and next week we'll get again into this uh, next week. So this morning, I'm going to look at this idea of division and the cause of that division, and then the next next week we'll look at then the signs of the times and how to settle your accounts, okay? Everybody with me? Are you with me so far? All right, take a big breath, get ready. We're going to rock and roll. We're going to go through some scripture, but you don't have to, if you're taking notes, fine, and you can write them down, but let me just say this is going to be important that you just try to just try to breathe this in a little bit of this morning and try to get the big picture, and I'll do my best to try to keep it at a 20,000-foot view here. Okay, so division is coming, and what is the cause? Well, fire is the cause. What kind of fire is this? Well, number one, there's uh, the fire of judgment that we're going to look at, certainly in the Old Testament. And then there's obviously this fire of the Holy Spirit that we're going to look at. Which one is it? Which one is it? What is the fire representative of, the Holy Spirit or judgment? And I would say probably a little bit like Forrest Gump. To quote my friend Forrest Gump, Well, I think it's probably a little bit of both. So it's a little bit of both. Now, scholars disagree, and some would say, no, the fire he's talking about is his death on the cross and this kindling and and all of that, and why would that be judgment? And, well, we're going to look at that. But first, let's go back to the Old Testament and see fire as judgment. Clearly, when fire falls from heaven in the Old Testament, it's almost always in the context of judgment. We just talked about 1 Kings 18. It consumed the sacrifice, and then all these prophets were, well, they took them down to this brook, and they, they killed them all. And that's judgment. That's harsh. Fire falling in the Old Testament is usually not a good thing. Let's look at Psalm chapter 21, verse 9. You will make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will devour them. So fire is a picture of judgment. Psalm 97, 3, fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries round about. Some of you may be even watching this morning on television or something other, and you just go, you know, this is what I thought. This, this hellfire and fury God of you fundamentalist, crazy, evangelical, whatever you may perceive this to be, and you say, I just can't buy this, and this is just why this, where you guys lose me. Hang in there for a little bit. I think you might be shocked. Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 4, circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, or else my wrath will go forth like 
fire and burn with none to quench it because, because of what? Because of the evil of your deeds. Now, this sets up our understanding in a little deeper way. What is God interested in consuming with fire as judgment? Just nice people, and that's unfair, and just they believed in the wrong religion, and therefore they chose uh, gate C instead of gates A and B and D, and they got the wrong one. It's like the big somehow, the you know, I don't know. Uh, it just seems so unfair, and this God, this uh, I just can't buy this stuff. What is God interested in consuming? Evil. Always evil. Why? Because evil hurts people, and God loves the world. We all, we all understand this so completely. We all have this thirst for, ju- for justice, and we know it involves consuming evil in whatever capacity that would be, whether it's incarceration or the death penalty or, or uh, sanctions or whatever it is, we, or losing your job or being shamed in the public court of opinion or whatever it is, we just know this to be true. We want justice because we want evil consumed because when evil proliferates, everybody suffers. We know this intuitively, but when we apply it to God, we're like, wait a minute, I don't know about that. Nahum, verse, chapter 1, verse 6, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. And finally, Malachi chapter 3. This is just a brief little survey. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. Look, folks, we vastly underestimate the wrath of God. Why? Because God hates sin. Why? Because sin destroys not only your individual life when you sin, but it destroys others' lives when you sin against them. And God hates dysfunction and chaos and anarchy. And and you just fill in the blanks, murder and theft and whatever it is, he hates it all because it destroys his good creation that was good in the first two chapters of Genesis. But he's had a plan from the very beginning. God loves us, but his dealings with us, and this is important to understand, his dealings with us are necessarily strained. Because why? Well, because we are sinners. Me, Jeff Cranford, a sinner, a sinner, and his relationship with me for years was strained. And the reason is because his wrath was upon me. Why? It had to be. I had caused pain in others' lives, and to some degree, I still cause pain in other people's lives. I don't want to. It's my intention not to, but I, I am a pain causer, and his wrath necessarily was poured out, but he didn't pour out that wrath on me. Dr. David Wells simply says, in Pauline thought, man is alienated from God by sin, and God is alienated from man by his wrath. Get this. It is in the substitutionary death of Christ that sin is overcome and wrath averted. Why didn't God pour out wrath on me? He preferred to avert pouring his wrath out on me so that God can look on man without displeasure and man can look on God without fear. Sin is expiated. That means it's dealt with. It's amended. It's 
Uh, it's made amends for. It's atoned for. It's what expiation means. Sin is expiated, and God is propitiated. And we're going to look at that a little bit more. God is pacified. His wrath is his wrath, well, it's like blowing the fire out. It's like adding water to the fire so that it's no longer a flame, at least on us, to consume us. It's fascinating. I, I, I want to I suggest an idea in your mind of what we are in right now. Where are we in the 21st century? Where are we? Jesus ascended, as we'll see in Acts chapter 1, and ascended back to the Father and he said, he's coming back. I go to prepare a place for you. So we know he's coming back. That's the hope. That's the great hope that Jesus is going to come back and set all things right. And, but we're between, get this in your mind, we are between the firestorms right now. We, let me say that again. We are between the firestorms. This is the age of grace. There was a firestorm that happened 2,000 years ago, and all the prophets saw it coming. There was a firestorm and a sacrifice was consumed and licked up. And there will be a future firestorm when he comes back. But right now, we're between the firestorms. We are in the age of grace. God's disposition towards sin has never wavered, but he poured out his wrath on a sacrifice 2,000 years ago and consumed it. Think about this for a second. Now we're going to go to the New Testament. Now this is for non-believers. We're going to talk about fire now in the New Testament as fire falls. Luke chapter 3, if you'll remember, verses 9 and 17. Indeed, Jesus speaking, the axe is already laid at the root of the tree so that every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Here we begin, a fire as judgment. And what's the delineation here? The tree that does not bear good fruit. How do you bear good fruit? What is good fruit? Galatians 5 tells us the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in us and fruit begins to pop out all over you. Goodness and joy and long-suffering and peace and kindness and all these joyous, wonderful, well, the fruit of the Spirit and God's looking for this fruit. In other words, God's looking for the Holy Spirit also, a represent, also represented by fire to be in you. Are you with me? What about believers? 1 Corinthians 3. Well, there's fire still involved when Jesus comes back. There's still judgment even for believers. Each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. I don't completely escape the fire. I escape the fire of ultimate judgment, but I don't escape the fire of well, what did Jeff's life look like? And yet I'm not consumed because if you're in Christ, you're still judgment and fire is this picture, this metaphor of fire is involved, but I'm not consumed at this point as a believer, but it, this fire of, of the end times is going to come and it's going to determine what my life actually looked like. Was it built with wood and hay and stone and stuff like that that was, can easily be consumed or gold and silver and precious stones. Or again, let me say, I'm not consumed in Christ as a believer. What about no action kind of people, people that come to church and all this, but they just go on living willfully in sin? Well, 
It's pretty terrifying. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 says, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there's no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will, again, consume the adversaries. Are you an adversary of God? Well, it just gave us a definition of what an adversary of God, someone who willfully goes on sinning. Now, I sin, but it's not willful. I have an intention to not sin, to follow Jesus, to be like him, to become like him. And little by little, day after day, and I go up and I'll take two steps forward and I'll take a few steps back. And, but over time, he's conforming me to the very image of God. But there's some who never, they may go to church, they may do this, they may recite a creed, they may do whatever, but they just go on sinning willfully and And Paul's trying to tell the believing community of Jews here, he said, be very, very careful not to find yourself in that kind of intentional state to where you just say, well, I've got the religious piece done, and you go back to your kingdom, and you build your own life, and you lead it as you will, and you you willfully sin, and there's no thought, there's no thought of confession, or there's nothing, there's nothing, even though you may be religiously attired. Be cautious. The kindling of judgment was about to happen, and that would be, as we just said, Jesus' crucifixion. The judgment would start with Jesus. It would be isolating. It would be brutal, but it would, let me just say this, it's important. It would satisfy the necessary wrath of God, substitutionary atonement. So fire consumes. I don't, I'm not going to go into all of this because we, we've done this at various points, but Isaiah 52 and 53 gives us, and I'm just going to just highlight a couple. I'm not going to read the whole two chapters or the second part of 52 and 53. I'm just going to highlight a few things as we go through here. This is what Isaiah, again, was looking into the future, seeing 700 years in the future, and what he was seeing is he was seeing a sacrifice being consumed on behalf, substitutionary, on behalf of a people. That's what Isaiah was seeing. And listen to how he describes a few things. His appearance was marred more than any man, Isaiah 52, 14. Isaiah 53, verse 5, he was pierced through for our transgressions and crushed, crushed for our iniquities. By his scourging, we are healed. Verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted and yet didn't open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter. Verse 10, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. The Lord, let me say it in another way, the Lord was pleased to consume that sacrifice, just like the sacrifice that Elijah put out. He consumed it and licked up the water, and it was completely consumed, and the people began to worship. And by the way, when the people heard, if you go back to 1 Kings 18, when the people heard that Elijah said, what about this? Why don't we do this? This would be kind of cool. Why don't we say, okay, you're God, Put a sacrifice out and let your gods fall like fire and nothing, crickets. And then then we'll do it for for the God of our forefathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the people responded, that's a great idea. That was their response. That was great. And can I tell you, they were exactly right. Because it was signifying what would happen, you know, years in the future, hundreds of years into the future with Jesus on that brutal cross naked, beaten, scourged, marred more than any man. And it would be consumed. And that's what Isaiah was seeing here. 
And it was a great idea. It was a great idea. See, Jesus applied this to his own, well, to himself. Mark chapter 10, Jesus said to them, do you not know what you are asking? Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? He's talking about what? He's talking about his own flesh being consumed as the ultimate substitutionary atonement for the world. They had no concept what he was talking about, zero. They just couldn't understand it. Listen to John Stott, one of the greatest books you'll ever read on substitutionary atonement. He says, so then God himself is at the heart of our answer to all these questions about the divine propitiation, pacifying God's righteous and correct and necessary wrath. It is God himself who is who in holy wrath needs to be propitiated or pacified. God himself, who in holy love undertook to do the propitiating, and God himself, who in the person of his son, died for the propitiation of our sins. Thus, God took his own loving initiative to appease his own righteous, righteous anger by bearing in itself its own self in his own son when he took our place and died for us. And there's no crudity here to evoke our ridicule, only the profundity of holy love to evoke our worship. When the fire fell and consumed the sacrifice during the time of Elijah, hundreds of years before Jesus, the people said, the Lord, he is God, and they began to worship the Lord, he is God. This should not in any way provoke in us some kind of crude response to how does a loving father kill his own son and all this kind of nonsense you'll hear among many of the kind of the new atheists about the absurdity of the sacrifice. They miss the whole point. It evokes our worship. Fire had to fall. And where was it going to fall? And whom was it going to, who was it going to consume? God himself. Does that, make, does that not lead you to worship? Is that crude in your mind? Or was one of the greatest ideas ever? Look, what it was not, and if you'll remember as we looked in Luke chapter 9, men Remember when they were walking back through the area of Samaria and they wouldn't let him stay there and they wanted to call fire down from heaven? Remember when the disciples, we talked about that in Luke 9? And Jesus simply said, you have no idea what spirit you're of. You have no idea what spirit you're moving from. That was a fire that would lead to destruction. But where are we? Jesus was provoking them to think into this between the firestorms. The first firestorm hadn't happened. It was going to fall on him. All the fire that was going to come down and should have licked up the adversaries, as we saw in the Old Testament, well, it was. But it was going to fall vicariously on him for all those who would believe into him. Do you understand that? Do you, that's substitutionary atonement. And it's in our DNA. We all feel like if somebody has to give an account, we always look for a scapegoat. It doesn't matter what happens. It can be a mass murder. It can be, it can be guns. It can be this. It can be psychology. It can be a bad response. Look at what happened to Uvalde. It's a bad response. We got to find, we have to find somebody to pay a price. 
the police didn't go in fast enough, this gun's absurd, you know, well, whatever it is, how come they didn't have better security, how they didn't better education, how they didn't have enough mental health coaching or whatever it is, we have, there's something in our very psyche that looks for somebody, somebody has to pay a price for this. We know it, it's part of us, but when we think about us and our need for it, we say, I don't need it. I'll do it myself. I'll cut myself and bleed out. That'll be my response, and that'll bring God down. That doesn't bring God down because you're not an unblemished lamb. You're not an unblemished sacrifice. It took someone who could pay the price, and that was only Jesus. I don't say this often, but can I get an amen on that one? Okay, good. Now, fire also represents, this is important, the Holy Spirit. What happened at Pentecost? Fire fell, didn't it? What happened? They were all there in the upper room. Jesus had told them, he said, whatever you do, do you go back, you wait in Jerusalem until the promise comes. And the promise came and fire fell. But guess what happened this time? It didn't consume them. It did something else. See, fire can do two things. It can either destroy and consume, and if you know what fire is, it just it's called the, they call the fire the, tri- the triangle of three things. Three things have to happen with fire. You have to have fuel, maybe a tree or something like that. You have to have oxygen, and what else do you have to have? You have to have heat, and that's why you can go out on, you know, and if you're lost in the wilderness, you don't have any fire. If you take those two sticks and you rub them fast enough, and eventually it gets enough heat, and then all of a sudden you have the oxygen that hits that, and you have a fuel, and then boom, boom, you can actually start you can start a fire, and then it's the burning of that, and I won't get into all that, but that, that's essentially what has to happen. So it consumes, but fire we use all the time for other purposes. It can cook food, it can purify, but it purifies. We saw that. It pur- fire can either destroy or it can purify. John chapter 3, verse 16, John answered and said to them, John the Baptist, as for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, this is what happened at Pentecost. John was through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit looking forward and, and going to baptize people with fire. I don't, you say, I don't want to be baptized with fire. Oh, you do as long as you're not consumed. See, the sacrifice is not you. You don't have to shed your own blood like those prophets of, of those gods during the time of Elijah cutting themselves. No, Jesus would be cut, if you will, bleed out, sprinkle the nations, for you. And now when God's fire falls, what happened at Pentecost? They saw flames of fire above their heads. They were like human candles, but they themselves were not consumed. What did those candles represent, if you will? Just bear with me. Can you get the picture? Here were human beings that looked like candles. They had a little, you know, little wick going up there and little fire above their heads. And yet, were they consumed or were they going to be purified through the process. Titus chapter 3, verse 5, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, not self-cutting, but according to his mercy by the washing and regeneration and renewing, purifying, if you will, what? By the Holy Spirit. See, this is what John, I don't know that John the Baptist understood this, but under the inspiration of the Spirit, he goes, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. There's going to be a purifying process that's going to come here. 
Look, some are just going to cling to the old rugged cross, and they're going to be passed over in judgment. I hope that's everyone in the sound of my voice clinging to his being consumed so that I don't have to be consumed. And when I cling to him, the promise of the Spirit is very central. Be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, and you shall receive the what? The Spirit. And the Spirit comes in fire to do what? To regenerate you, to renew you, to purify you. Living on the inside of you, religion is just you doing all the external kinds of things. I watched a movie this last week on the ultra-Orthodox community. Fascinating. It's on HBO. And uh, it, was, it was just all their efforts to be pure, and they were making, you know, and they made comments like, if you clean the outside, then the inside is clean as well. It was just a, it's a very rare, it's a very private community in New York. And it, this was just a movie, but it was, these were actually or, ultra-Orthodox folks. And, you know, is that how it works? Did we just clean up the outside where it looks right? I, I don't want the outside cleaned up. I want the inside cleaned up. I have to live with the inside. Everybody else can see the outside. I have to live with the inside. When the inside gets cleaned up, I feel better and other people feel better around me. If I just do the outside, it actually goes to the other degree and it actually turns people off and they go, hypocrite, you dress up the outside, but on the inside, well, you got nothing, Jeff. It has to be an inside-out job. But let me tell you something, and this is where division comes in. If you don't understand what we just talked about, you're not going to understand why Jesus said Division is coming. I didn't come to bring peace, but division. What does that mean? Well, others are going to reject his sacrifice and cling to their flawed worldviews and self-righteousness, leading to a necessary hatred of the message of the cross. Let me say that again. People are going to cling to their old worldviews, and they're going to hate. Their worldview did not include that I deserve to be consumed, but Jesus was consumed on my behalf. I deserve it, and they don't like that message, and it will cause division. It will. It's inevitable. A real understanding of the cross is confrontational. It determines a person's total way of viewing the world. It's vital. Why was Paul so determined to never stop talking about the firestorm that happened on that old rugged cross? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17 says, For Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. See, the problem in the culture, when you see religious, when you see religion and you see people and you say they're not deeply affected and you're not seeing the fruit of the Holy Spirit in their lives, any of it, then what you've come in contact with is a false narrative on Christ. Paul described it to the Galatians as another Jesus. It's not the real Jesus. The real Jesus is Jesus Christ crucified, dead, buried, and resurrected on our behalf. That's the message of the cross, not cleverness of speech, not Jesus' moral teacher, not Jesus' just spreading love, and as long as you love other people, everything's fine, and you're actually living into the life of Jesus. Jesus came, said, no, I came to bring division. When you preach the cross of Christ, if you don't get this, you will not understand. You will not understand your life. You, you, you will go into a social situation. You'll be afraid to say anything because you don't want to get people riled up about your religious beliefs. Look, the fact of the matter is Jesus said, I came to bring division. The message in this fire that's kindled, me being on the cross is what brings division. You can go to any political, you can go to any party, any social, 
spiritual escapade that you want and say, you know, I read a book on Jesus and it was fascinating because Jesus kind of helped me understand this morally and I started treating my kids or wife or friends a little better and it's kind of helped me in my life. And people are all wonderful, fantastic. I'm so glad you got this beautiful moral teaching from an ancient moral guru named Jesus. You'll get applauded. But if you go into a social situation and say, I was a mess and I knew that it was going to necessitate Jesus dying for me on that cross so that I might be made right with God, you're going to, well, you're going to bring division. And you're probably not going to be invited back. But you might be. And when you are invited back, lives change. Do you think division happens because of the cross, because of that firestorm? Division happens because of the firestorm, not because of Jesus' moral teaching. So have you ever had that occur in your life? Have you ever had, have you embraced the cross, the real message of Jesus? What he said about himself, not what some guys in pointy hats said 400 years after the fact and all that other kind of nonsense you get from things like the Da Vinci Code, which had no historical context. It was absurd. It was a bad, pathetic attempt at trying to unpack some things that were clearly false and now under even historical criticism deems them ridiculous. Jesus said this about himself. The prophet said that this was going to happen. It was going to be, well, some priest king, some lamb, some Messiah was going to be consumed on the behalf of the world. Have you ever had a friend that you lost because you preached the cross and then you lost him as a friend? I'm going to have Greg Solis come up for a second and we were talking about this the other day, and uh, it's got kind of a glorious ending to it, actually. And I just wanted to have him share. You know, we, we have a little fellowship group, but Greg and Monica and his family, and Emily's here this morning. And, and, um, and we had all the, you know, we've been doing ministry together for a long time. And the origins, as we've, we, I've told you, kind of the origins of this church really started in their home called the living room years ago. But when you really got serious about the cross of Christ... You had a buddy, and did it bring division, or did it bring, oh, this is wonderful. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, no, it was, um, it was a tough time. I mean, you know, I, I recall, of course, um, as I began to research and do my spiritual due diligence on whether I really believed in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, I began to realize something different was happening in my heart, and it was, it was not just, let me just sprinkle Jesus on my already, what I thought was good life, and make it better, uh, but it was a, no, I'm all in, I'm going to be a bond slave to Jesus Christ, but went through my head constantly is, I had a bunch of friends that are good buddies of mine, and I go, they're, they're going to they're gonna think I've lost my mind, and I love these guys, I mean, I love them to death, they're my very best friends, some of them since elementary school. And I was scared to death of, of losing all my friends. And, um, yeah, and I did. I did lose a lot of friends. It was, it was challenging for sure. You had one that you lost for a pretty significant period of time. Yeah, one, one good buddy, um, his name's Kurt. I know he, I got his permission to use his name, so he's okay with it. I don't know if he's here today or not. But um, it was, uh, it, he, he and I had been friends literally since, you know, high school. And, and we hung out quite a bit, talked several times a day, and, just a great friend of mine. And, and, uh, and again, I was no choir boy by any stretch. I, we were, we were running pretty hard. I went to UCLA. I was in a fraternity. I, I did your typical college stuff. And, and, uh, and so he and I were buddies and I got married and was starting to have children and he was in a different place in his life. He was single. And, 
And uh, and one day, I mean, literally, he, you know, as I was moving in this direction, one day he just literally stopped returning my calls. It was the strangest thing. It broke my heart. My daughter was born, and things were going on, and and he was just nowhere to be found. Nowhere to be found. And then years later, uh, something happened, and we st- he started coming to a little fellowship group. I don't know how all that all happened, but now he's made some big strides and now not only you two reconnected but you're probably connected in a way much more powerful than any other way is that oh for sure i mean there was a a couple of things that had happened one was when i went through this process and i literally was thinking oh my gosh i'm gonna lose all my friends and and i made one call to my buddy in santa barbara one of my closest friends since elementary school and this was god's just the way that god worked and he knew that i needed this i was probably just too insecure to make this big move and but he, it was amazing because I called my buddy, his name's Jay, and he goes, Greg, we got to talk. I said, yeah, what's up, man? He goes, you won't believe it. I started going to this church, and man, I'm telling you, something. God did something in my heart, and I've just completely given my life to the Lord. And, and I remember just sitting there going, oh, at least I got one. I got one. <laughs> if I got one, I got this. So I, it just was a changing point for me at that point to say, okay, I could do this. And of course, I was going to Jeff's Bible study at this point at, at La Quinta Country Club on Thursday morning and I was just going every single Thursday and just getting, just drinking out of a fire hose for a long time. But it was just a cool thing that God did that. Well, fast forward, Kurt disappears for literally like a decade. I don't see him. I bump into him occasionally and, but it was just a different thing and it was just sad. I missed him dramatically. And he came back into our life and I saw him, I gave him a hug and and just began to minister to him. You know, I was at a different place, obviously, and we talk about it now. And he says, man, Greg, you were just pretty judgmental and kind of righteous. And I just couldn't be around it. You drove me nuts. And I probably did. He goes, but when I came back around, you know, 20 years later, almost now, and he just said, it's just different. And he obviously had ears to hear and eyes to see. And it's kind of cool because I just got back from Cabo, by the way, yesterday and I officiated my first wedding. So a lot of these guys that I was friends with for all these years, I guess I'm becoming like the local chaplain, and they're saying, hey, man, I guess I'm the only religious guy they know, and would you officiate my wedding? I'm like, yeah, sure, okay. So uh, it was cool, though, because a lot of those people are circling back into my life, and, and hey, well, tell me about this. We're in our 50s now, and, and it's awesome because I'm in a much different place to be able to, to minister to them and speak into their lives. So now there is some cool things going on awesome. for sure. Awesome. Thanks, brother. Appreciate that. And that awesome gave me a hand. <clears throat> so some, uh, some of you may be in a place where, you know, the divisions happen, but the reconciliation has not. The reconciliation sometimes comes and sometimes doesn't. But the point is, when the Lord pours out this fire, which was him being consumed on the cross, and when you go forward as that message, I want to close this morning with Acts chapter 1. Where did this end? By the way, Jesus, when he very first met his first disciples, the first thing he said in Mark chapter 4 to those disciples was, throw down your nets, and I'm going to make you fishers of men. And the last known words that we have uh, from Jesus to his disciples were this. Are you ready? So we want to know the first words to his disciples and the last words. They were probably pretty important. And they're simply this. Uh, gathering them together, verse 4 of chapter Acts chapter 1. This is after he had been consumed on the cross and then resurrected. Okay, get the picture. He gathered them together. He commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, do you want to be baptized in fire 
with in Christ, kind of like the uh, you know Shadrach, Meshach, and to bed we go, <laughs> as a, as you tell your children those stories, where they were in the fire but not consumed. Do you want to be in God's fire and not consumed, or do you want to be in the firestorm at the end of time where Jesus comes back and you have nothing but your own blood to show for your life? It's as simple as that. That's really what true Christianity is. I'm with him. I'm with him. Well, this is how he finishes it. And so when he had gotten together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it it this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said, it's not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Now, catch this. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, remember, in fire, And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. What he was saying, and let me just use my own language and commentary here, you guys wait around in Jerusalem because something's going to happen. God's fire is going to fall. But it's already fallen on me and consumed the sacrifice. He's not looking to consume a sacrifice anymore. But now the fire is going to fall and you're not going to be consumed. You're going to become human candles. And as such, what's going to happen? You're going to go out into a dark world, and the only light people are going to have is the Christ, the Holy Spirit in you, shining the way towards my presence. You go be my witnesses. And in doing so, you're going to cause all kinds of division, just like the division that I caused. It's okay. It's part of being in the kingdom. You can't have everyone think you're fantastic and follow Jesus. Some are going to think you're nuts. Some are going to want to do it their own way. They're going to create false narratives, and they're going to live under worldviews that are going to bring nothing but chaos and anarchy. And deep down, and some of you may be watching this morning, deep down you know that's true. And you may be in the middle of a firestorm, it feels like right now. Can I just, may I just tell you, allow the firestorm to be Jesus on your behalf. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Saved from what? The firestorm that will be his second coming. I hope that was clear. We'll, get, we'll finish this portion of Scripture next week when we talk about the times, the signs of the times, and the other other portions of this last bit of Luke chapter 12. Let me close in prayer. Lord Jesus, please help us. Maybe there's somebody watching or somebody here this morning or somebody who may see this, uh, who knows, years from now. The word is immutable. It never changes. Your word has been the same, well, not just from the New Testament, but from the very beginnings of the fall. You were tripped up. It was a heel shot but it was a crushing blow to that snake in the garden, a crushing blow for all those who would believe. If you're here this morning or you're watching this at some point, you say, I want Jesus to be my substitutionary atonement. I want the fire do me to fall on him, and that happened 2,000 years ago. Just tell him, "I, I choose to follow you and let you be the Lamb of God on my behalf escaping the firestorm that one day will come, either by me dying and leaving this planet or you coming back. I trust you to be my substitutionary atonement. I choose, you to, I choose to give you my life without reserve for the rest of my life. I'm gonna live for you. 
drop your golf clubs and follow me, he may say. Drop your tennis racket and follow me. Drop your menu and follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. I will make you human candles in a very dark and lonely world. In Jesus' name, amen. Hope you have a glorious week, and unless he comes back, we'll see you here next week.